survival. How are we doing this morning? Oh boy. Some of you all need to help yourself to a second cup of coffee. All right. Uh, well, good morning. This is the second week of our guilt-free series on sharing the gospel with our non-Christian neighbors and co-workers and friends and family members. And this week, what we want to focus on is the content of the gospel, because if you are going to share the gospel with someone, it helps to know what the gospel is. Amen? That helps. All right. And you would be surprised, believe it or not, how many Christian people, if you ask them to put into two sentences what the gospel is, can't do it. And I want, I don't want to assume anything, uh, and so I, because... The fact is, is that it is the gospel message which brings people to life. It is the gospel message which replaces someone's eternal destiny with an, eter- with an eternal destiny of in- being in the presence of God instead of being shut out from God in the majesty of his power, as uh, 2 Thessalonians talks about. It's the gospel message we need to be clear on, and so we need to be more than just close more than kind of sort of biblical, kind of generally talking about Jesus and believing in Jesus, we need to be absolutely clear on what the gospel is. And the good news is that the, the Bible itself makes it very, very easy for us to be really, really clear on what the gospel is because the Bible itself is very, very clear. And uh, I want you to look with me to see uh, one, pla- one place in the scriptures where it makes it really, really clear. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. And this is the Apostle Paul writing. Uh, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, this is beginning in verse 1, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, in this little passage, Paul gives an answer to the question, what is the gospel? And he reminds the Corinthians, look, it is this message, and it's not any other message, it's this message that has the power to bring salvation to people. And therefore, it's this message that is worth holding on to and not forsaking uh, because nothing else has the power to save people from sin and death and hell like the gospel. And Paul highlights this because it's not only the one that the Corinthians received and were saved by, but it's also the one that Paul himself received from someone else and believed and and as a result of his belief, receive salvation. And boiled down, what the gospel comes down to is just four important verbs. And you have it on your outline there. I've got four blanks. 
there on the first under the first point is four important verbs. This is a grammar lesson, okay? Partly, but it's also about what does the Bible say about what the gospel is. It's four verbs. The first one is that Christ died. And as Paul makes clear, Jesus, when he died, did not simply die as a martyr for a good cause. He died for our sins. He died as our substitute, taking our place, uh, taking our penalty. So that instead of we who receive, who deserve death for our sins, uh, instead of that, we can be forgiven of our sins and be restored to relationship with God. That we who deserve death don't get death because Christ died for our sins. So the first point of the gospel, if you're ever going to share it with somebody, is this. That Christ died for our sins. And the proof of that is the second point, that he was buried. Now, I don't know if you've ever um, been to a funeral or been around funeral homes, but one thing that's important to note is that Ordinarily, they do not bury living people, right? And if they do bury living people, that is a huge tragedy and a, and, a, and a great travesty, right? You lose your license, I believe, over that if you bury any living people. Uh, and in fact, Christ was really dead. In fact, he was dead for three days. He was really dead. He was in the grave long enough to start to rot, and yet didn't rot, did he? He was really dead, and his death was for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and the proof that he was really dead was that he was buried. And the third that takes us to the third point of the gospel, which is that he was resurrected. That instead of rotting and staying dead and being in that tomb, he was resurrected. And lots of, And this is really important that you get this. That in your presentation of the gospel, that you not leave out the resurrection. Because lots of people, in fact, lots of even gospel tracts that you get, will talk a whole lot about Jesus' death for sin and how through Jesus' death we have forgiveness of sin. And that's all important and good. And it, but it's only half a gospel presentation. Because the other side of it is that Jesus Christ is not a man who simply died and who was a good man who did good things and then he died and somehow he was supposed to be our representative and substitute. No. How do we know that Jesus' death was acceptable to God as payment for our sins? The fact that he did not stay dead, the fact that he was raised from the dead, is what gives us new life and gives us hope of eternity with God. We have the certainty that eternal life is coming for us. Because why? Because it came for Jesus. Because death could not keep its hold on him. Because death had no right to hold him in the grave. Death is the penalty for sin. Jesus Christ was not guilty of any sin himself. But because he died as our substitute, our sin was placed on him so he could die. But he couldn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. And don't miss, when you share the gospel, don't miss sharing about the risen Savior who gives us new life. Who replaces the old life that we have with new life. 
And how do we know that he was raised from the dead? How do you know that he was really raised from the dead? I mean, people don't get out of the grave. How, does that, how do you know that Jesus really was raised? Well, it's not just a story that Christians tell. He was seen alive after his crucifixion. And by the way, the Romans knew how to kill people. They, they killed tens of thousands of people by, by crucifixion on either side of Jesus' life. In the decades leading up to it, in the decades following, and even in the centuries following, the, the Romans were masters at, at capital punishment. They could put people to death. In fact, they crucified 600 guys in one, just one day after the Spartacus Rebellion. They lined the Appian Way into Rome with the guys. They knew how to put people to death. And in fact, if there had been any doubt that Jesus was really dead, they, the Roman soldier came along and speared him through the ribs into his heart, and blood and water flowed out, right? Why? Because his pericardium, his sack around his heart, filled up with fluid, which happens when you're crucified. And blood flows out because it coagulates in your heart muscle when you die. It can't be pumped out anymore. Jesus was really dead, but he was really right. He really rose from the dead. He was really resurrected. And we know that he was really resurrected because he was seen. In other words, this is not a fantasy. This is a fact. And Paul, in fact, encourages people to check this out. He says, look, he was seen, and he gives a list of witnesses. Uh, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. In other words, to all the other uh, the apostles except for Judas, who was already dead by that point. And he appeared also to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, you can ask any of these people. They were there. They saw him. More than 500 people at one time saw him. And then he appeared to James, his own brother, and then to all the apostles, and then he says, last of all, he appeared to me. When did he appear to Paul? On the Damascus Road. He says, last of all. He goes, I saw the resurrected Jesus too. But not when everybody else did. I saw him later on the Damascus Road when he confronted me in light and knocked me to the ground. He made me blind for a week. Until I could see that he is, in fact, the God he claims to be. In other words, lots and lots of witnesses could testify to the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And to sum it all up, this is what the gospel is. You boil it all down. This is what the gospel is. Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And that is the message we need to share with our non-Christian friends, with our non-Christian co-workers, with our neighbors, with our family. Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And when we share that message with them, we need to understand what we're asking them to do with it. What are we asking someone to do with that message when we share it? And that is what we're asking them to do is to respond with saving faith. And that leads me to the next question on your outline there. What is saving faith? The Bible uses two words to, to tell us what a person has to do 
in response to the gospel. They are the noun, faith, and the verb, believe. And these two words are used literally hundreds and hundreds of times in the New Testament. And when you study them together, what you see is that saving faith is focused on Jesus Christ, and it includes three important aspects, three facets. Number one, saving faith involves knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. In other words, that person needs to have a basic understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. If you look at John 5.24, Jesus talks about he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. This is why it's absolutely critical that we share the gospel. Because someone can't believe if they do not hear it. It's, it's, it's well and fine to practice um, an evangelistic lifestyle, to um, be able to be the example of Jesus in a culture which is running completely antithetical to everything that Jesus would represent and be. But Jesus says, you need to hear my word and believe. Paul says it another way. Um, in Romans ten fourteen, he says, How will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? If you don't know anything about Jesus, it's highly unlikely you will ever come to faith in him. Amen? And, if you, and beyond simply knowing Jesus' name, a person needs to know some basic facts about Jesus, don't they? They need to know some basic facts. And they need to know, first of all, that Jesus was fully human so that he could be the sacrifice for the sins of the human race. And that is essential. You know, we're, in second, uh, we're looking at Second Peter in, uh, in Sunday school class with Clint Banks. It's a great class, by the way. You should come. You really should. This is great stuff. And he's talking about... Uh, Peter is talking about how there are all kinds of false teachers and false belief systems that are being spread out there. And he says, look, you need to be able to recognize the difference. There are all kinds of people, I will tell you, who, will, who are out there making Jesus either not fully human or maybe only divine and not really a human being at all. And the Apostle John says it this way. He says that one of the ways you can distinguish false Christianity from true is this. He says in 1 John 4, 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. In other words, if you're looking for what's truly from the Spirit of God, understand this, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, Jesus is not simply a divine figure, although he is fully God. And we'll get to that in a second. But he also is fully God in the flesh. He had a real human nature. He had a real human life. He had a normal human birth. He had a mother. And 
you know, despite what we sing at Christmas, it was not a silent night. And it was not peaceful. There was blood on the floor of the stable. And there was manure and filth. And probably Mary screamed and cried. As did Jesus. Jesus was a real man. A real man. He had a real human nature like you and me. When he was tempted by Satan, it was a real temptation. There was no net. It was a real temptation. He was, real, he was a real man. But he is not simply a human being like you and me. He's also fully God. He possesses all the attributes of God, even with a fully human nature as well. And that's John's point, John 20, 31. I want you to turn over there with me. John chapter 20, verse 31. If you've got, if you've got your gospel of John, what you've got is a book that is written explicitly to tell people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is what he says, John 20, 31. Let's back up to verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, Jesus is fully man, but he's fully God in the flesh. And after they understand that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, they need to hear the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. And his death conquers sin and death, and his resurrection gives us new life. He is the risen Son of God. You have to have knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done in order to have saving faith. But you also have to have a second thing, and that is acceptance of Christ's person and work. And in the Bible, you know, the words faith and the word believe have to do with being convinced that something is true. Convinced that something is true. Lots and lots of people have heard the gospel message they have heard Christians talk about how they believe Jesus to be the theanthropic person, the God-man, who died on the cross for sins and was raised from the dead. And lots of people have heard that, but they do not accept it. They do not believe it to be true. In Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here again, the word believe there is used in the sense of being convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sin and was raised from the dead. So there's knowledge, there's acceptance, and then there's also this last one, trusting in Christ alone to save. Lots and lots and lots of people believe in Jesus and something else. They believe in Jesus and keeping the sacraments. 
They believe in Jesus and good works. They believe in Jesus and join Boy Scouts. You know, Jesus and Buddha. Jesus and Muhammad. Jesus and all kinds of other things. But the Bible says that Jesus alone is the one who saves. In fact, when Jesus himself was asked how a person could be saved, in John 3.16, this is what he said. Remember? Whosoever believes in him will be saved. And there's this emphasis on trusting in Christ and him alone to save. And in the same way, in Acts 16.31, Paul and Silas are in prison. They've just been beat half to death. They wake up in jail and they start singing. And the walls start shaking and everybody's chains come loose and the doors fly open. And the Philippian jailer realizes that he's, he should, he's probably going to have to take his life because all the prisoners have most likely escaped. But Paul and Silas shout out and they say, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. The jailer comes in. And he says, what do I have to do to be saved? What do they say? They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The three aspects of saving faith, knowledge of who Christ is and what he did, acceptance of those facts, and then trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone to be our only hope of salvation. Now, I want to be equally clear on what the gospel isn't. What the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. Because the message of the gospel needs to be both clear and clearly presented. You don't want to muddy the water for somebody. Make it hard. Or, or share it in a way that just really clouds the issue for your non-Christian friend or coworker or family member or neighbor. But the thing is, a lot of times as Christians, as we get to relating with one another, we start speaking kind of Christianese to each other. And we use terms that really make it fuzzy for someone who is a non-Christian or what they need to do in response to the gospel. We, they, they go, mm, I don't know if I get this. And so I want to highlight six terms that you should not use <laughs> when you are asking someone to respond to the gospel. You can call them the dirty half dozen. All right, don't do this. It clouds the issue. Don't do it. The first one, give your heart to Jesus. One a lot of Christians use. Give your heart to Jesus. What's wrong with that? Well, it isn't what the New Testament asks a non-Christian to do. Look with me. I want you to actually turn here, okay? Over at, over at Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. Why did I have you guys look that up? Because here's the deal. What Paul is making clear is that Jesus is the perfect God-man and that everything belongs to him. And salvation, therefore, is not a matter of us having anything to give to Jesus. It's a matter of Jesus giving everything to us because everything already belongs to him. All the fullness of deity and everything in the created order already belongs to Jesus. So you can't tell someone, well, give your heart to Jesus. He's already created you. Everything already belongs to him. And that's not what salvation is, of us taking our stuff and saying, here, Jesus, this is, this is what I got. Isn't it awesome? No, it's not awesome. It's a matter of him giving his glory, his salvation, his forgiveness to them and to me and to you. So don't tell people, give your heart to Jesus. That's not what the Bible asked them to do. The Bible asked them to put their trust in Jesus. Second phrase to avoid is give your life to God. Well, what's wrong with that? It's not what the New Testament asks a person to do. Look at John, First uh, John five eleven. First uh, John five eleven, the Apostle John says, "And this is the testimony God, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son." And again, it's not that we give anything to God, like He's somehow getting a favor from us. You know, well, I've been withholding my life up to now, God, but I'm going to do you a solid here. Give my life to you. No. We are receiving a gracious gift of life from God. We don't give our life to him. He gives his life to us. Don't cloud the issue. Number three, invite Christ into your heart. What's wrong with that? It's not what the New Testament asks us to do. It's not what the New Testament asks us to do. Some of you know your Bibles and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, hold on, wait a second. You're wrong. What about Revelation chapter 3, verse 20? Where it talks about, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Wait a minute, what about that verse? Let's go to that verse and let's take a look at it. Okay? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. As some of you, you know, you know your Bible and you're thinking, I think preachers all wet on this. Okay? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sit with him and he with me. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't that, that seems to be making an invitation to invite Christ in, right? Well, here's the problem with that. Go back to verse 14. To the church in Laodicea, right? Okay, who are the people at the church? They're the believers. So in other words, this verse 20 is not written to an unbeliever. It's written to a believer. And the church in Laodicea is one that has, has grown cold toward Jesus. And so Jesus is not enjoying fellowship with them. 
And so he's saying, it's like you have put me outside of your church. Invite me back in. It's not addressed to believers. I mean, it's addressed to believers, not to unbelievers. And the issue here that's being discussed is fellowship and friendship with Jesus not coming to faith in Christ. That these people have become worldly and Jesus has been shut out. And he says, look, don't you think it would be good if I were on the inside of the building rather than the outside? On the inside of your fellowship rather than the outside? Since you all, after all, are Christians and claim to follow me. These people need to repent of their sin, but they're already Christians. Don't cloud the issue. Uh, Now, number four may be really shocking to you. Don't tell people, would you like to pray to receive Christ? Don't tell people that. Why? It's not that prayer is bad. It's not that prayer is bad. But what's wrong with it? Say it with me. It's not what the New Testament asks an unbeliever to do. Because here's the thing. Receiving salvation is not a matter of praying. It's a matter of trusting and believing. And what you run the risk of doing if you say, would you like to pray to receive Christ, is causing the person to trust in the prayer rather than in Jesus. Lots and lots of people have prayed to receive Christ. And they said the words that someone said for them, and they said them back. But they never believed the words that they prayed. And yet they believe that they are marked and stamped for heaven because 20 years ago they prayed to receive Christ with some well-meaning person. And yet they never believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead. They simply prayed a prayer with some well-meaning person. And you confuse the issue. Because what is the issue? It isn't whether or not they prayed. It's whether or not they believed what the message of the gospel is. Now, is prayer a fine thing? Absolutely. Can you pray or, or tell the person, you know, you might tell God in a prayer what you have done and what you have believed? Sure. But it's not the act of praying that saves the person. It's their belief that brings them salvation. At least according to the Bible. Another really common phrase, number five, accepting Christ. And you hear people say this all the time. I accepted Christ back when I was nine, or I became a Christian when I accepted Christ into my life. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, the New Testament does talk about that, actually. In one verse, uh, John chapter 1, verse 12. Let's take a look at it. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, in this one verse where it talks about receiving Christ or accepting Christ, 
in that same verse, it clarifies what that means. Now, this isn't a grammar class, but the way that that sentence is structured, uh, John has written it with a clarifying statement. He says, to as many as received him, and he says, let me explain what that means, who believed in his name. In other words, receiving in John's sense is the same as believing in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And so you want to be really careful that you emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. And what the Bible emphasizes is belief and trust in the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sin, for your sin, for my sin, for all sin, and was raised from the dead to give us new life. That is the emphasis of the Bible. The last one, uh, and this is one that also trips a lot of people up, repenting. And repentance is tricky because the Bible talks about repentance a lot, and sometimes it does talk about it in an evangelistic context. But we need to be really careful because what people think of when they hear this word repent is they think that, well, I have to confess all my sins and clean myself up, and, and if I become a good person, well, then God will accept me. And that is not what the New Testament tells us whatsoever about how a person comes to faith in Christ. They come to, to, to Christ not after they have cleaned themselves up, not after they have gotten rid of all their sin, not after they have, have um, realized what a horrible person they are and turned from their wicked ways, but even in the midst of all of that. The Gospel of John is written specifically to tell a person how to possess eternal life. And you know what? John uses the word believe in his Gospel 98 times in 20 chapters. And he never once uses the word repent. And you know why that is? It's because when a person believes in the biblical sense of believe, they have already repented. Because what repentance means biblically is to change your mind, is to turn around, to take a new direction. And when a person changes their mind about Jesus from rejecting him to following him, they have already, in the biblical sense, repented. Already happened. A person cannot go from following their own way, doing their own thing, and turn toward Jesus and put their trust in him and continue to face the same direction. They can't. They have already repented when they have believed in Jesus Christ. And so you want to be really careful when you talk about repentance because faith and repentance are part of the same thing. And you want to make sure you don't confuse people and confuse the issue and make what should be really clear that it's an issue of belief. 
Not an issue of cleaning yourself up, not an issue of making yourself look really good and, then do, and doing a bunch of good things and then God accepts you if you believe in him. No. It's you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And as a result of that belief, God then cleans you up. Because he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within you and he gives you a new heart and a new nature and he writes the law on your heart and gives you the power to obey him. It's not a matter of doing all these things to make yourself acceptable to God. It's a matter of believing what God has already done and being transformed by that into a new person. Understand? Make sense? Got to get this clear. Uh, you turn from your old life when you believe in Jesus Christ. And then God gives you, as a, in response to your faith, the new life that you are seeking. Now look, the gospel is clear and it's simple. And I've spent a lot of time, and I really don't want to make anybody feel bad about this at all. Spent a lot of time talking about what the gospel is, what a person needs to do in response to it, and what they what we want to avoid when we're talking about it. But my, and the reason for that is this: is that the gospel is a clear and simple message, and I want to make sure that when we share it with people, that we are clear and simple in how we do so. What's the gospel? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. So if, if you sit in my office and I ask you, how would you share the gospel with someone? What you need to say is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. Well, when did you believe that? I believed that when I was nine. I believed that when I was 14. I believed that last week. I believe that today. Uh, that is the message that imparts new life to people. And when you sit at a, in a coffee shop with an unbelieving friend or, or stand over your fence with your neighbor and you talk about the weeds and you talk about you know, how the garden's going and whether or not you're getting enough rain and how's your job and what's your, how's your, how, how are things with your wife? I heard she was sick. And, uh, oh, by the way, you know, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Well, yeah, I kind of believe this. And, well, what would you think if, if, if I told you what I believe. Because I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead to give us new life. That is the message that gives people life. That is the message that turns someone from a rebel against God into a son of God. That is the message that transforms terrorists and self-righteous people, and fornicators, and adulterers, and greedy people, and homosexuals, and whatever long list of nasties you want to come up with, that is the message that changes people, that brings them from death to life, that takes them out of hell and puts them in heaven. That is the message that gives people entry into the very presence of God. And so we want to be absolutely clear and faithful to present it. It's by grace that we are saved. Amen? 
It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy that He saved us. It isn't because we were such great people that He saved us. It was because we were such wicked people that we needed salvation. And God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, to, be a, to live a real human life as a real man. But He remained God in the flesh. And he died on the cross for our sins and he was raised from the dead. And that belief, that conviction, not knowing who he is and what he did and accepting it for myself and putting my trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, that is the thing that separates me from the pathway I was on. And we have this good message. We have a good message that brings life to people. And people all over around us are enslaved to all kinds of stuff. Get to know people and ask them and they will tell you about all the difficulty and pain and suffering that they endure and how they don't have any real hope that the next world is going to be any better than this one. Oh, I hope I go to heaven. Well, what makes you think you will go? Well, you know, I'm better than most people. And we have the glorious privilege of being able to tell people, you know what? Here's the deal. The world does not divide into good people and bad people. The world divides between bad people and Jesus between those who trust in Jesus and those who do not. And I want to invite you, encourage you, plead with you, beg you to trust in Jesus because it's the only hope. It's the only lifeboat on this boat, off this boat that's going down. This is the only raft. Get in the lifeboat with me. By grace we are saved. By grace we are also sent out into the world. With the message. We have the gracious privilege of going out as God's ambassadors into the world to tell people that God loves them and wants to rescue them from the consequences of what they're doing. God loves you, and He has made a way for you to escape from sin and death and hell. Would you like to avail yourself of that privilege? By grace we are saved. By grace we are sent. Carry a message of grace to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that by your grace you save us. We thank you that it is not according to all the good stuff that we did, because as you say through Isaiah, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. All that we might do is unacceptable to you in every way. But what Jesus has done on our behalf is completely and totally and fully sufficient and acceptable to make the payment for our sin. And he took our penalty of death and separation from you that we might not ever be separated from you. Father, we pray that we would, if we are here today, 
And we have never believed the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead to give me new life. Father, I pray if there's anyone here, man or woman, boy or girl, who's never believed that message, that today would be the day of salvation and that they would believe and have the new life you promise, forgiveness and restoration of relationship with you. And Father, I pray that those of us who have believed that message, whether today or at some point in the past, that we would, by your grace, carry the message of grace that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. We would carry that message to a lost and dying world who desperately needs to hear it and who desperately needs to receive salvation and the consequences of what we've done. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.